The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Cheryl Harris. She's an award-winning dietitian with a master's degree in public health nutrition from the University of California at Berkeley. She has been a dietitian for 20 years and is the owner of Harris Whole Health, her private practice based in Fairfax, Virginia, where she really focuses on and specializes in digestive disorders. Ms. Harris has been uniquely interested in a condition called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, since developing it herself in 2000. She has published papers on POTS and nutrition for the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and she is driven to have her experiences help make the path easier for others suffering with the condition. She has also been an instructor for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Certificate of Training in Gluten-Related Disorders. Welcome, Cheryl. Delighted to be here today. Well, I'm so interested in POTS because it seems that the condition has been on an increase since the COVID pandemic, and it appears to happen more commonly in women and after having a viral infection. So I'm wondering, Can you describe POTS for our audience? What are the symptoms? First, I want to say you're right on both counts. So POTS has a female predominance. It's more likely in women, four to one times more likely in women. And it is also very common post-viral, even though it can happen really after any physical stressor. But to answer your question, there are many symptoms of POTS. Someone can be dizzy, they can have brain fog, they can have tachycardia or rapid heart rate. There can be many kinds of digestive symptoms, bloating, gas, diarrhea, stomach pains, a wide range of digestive kinds of distress memory concentration or difficulty. So it can show up in a wide range of different kinds of ways. So with your own personal experience in developing it, was your situation post-viral infection? Well, actually, mine showed up right after a surgery. So POTS can show up after any kind of physical stressor. So it can be post-viral. It can be after a surgery. For some people, it's after pregnancy. For many teenagers, it can happen as a result of a change in hormones. So it can be really as a result of any kind of physiologic stressor. So what is the percentage of the population that seems to be afflicted with this? That's a great question. So prior to COVID, it was around 1%. Since COVID, the numbers are pretty messy, meaning that I've seen numbers in terms of the people who have long COVID range from in the long COVID population, 10% to 30%. Because the numbers for long COVID in general have varied so widely and because it depends on which wave of COVID 
I don't think we're going to have firm numbers for a while, but we certainly know that it's higher than 1%. The number that I've seen most frequently cited is around 3% of the population. Oh, that's interesting. I have a good friend who's also a nutritionist who developed POTS, wasn't post-COVID, but she went to doctor after doctor with Mm -hmm. rapid heart rate to try to find out what was going on. And she actually diagnosed herself after Mm -hmm. doing a lot of research online. She finally found a cardiologist who agreed that, yes, indeed, that was what she had. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of navigating the medical system is a real challenge. And I think for many people coming in with post-COVID symptoms, it's been a real challenge for the medical community. What kind of advice do you give patients who may have some of these symptoms, but they don't really know who to go to? And if they go to their physician, maybe the physician just passes it off as nothing. I think this is a really excellent question. And and really requires a huge amount of unpacking, simply because I think this is a long COVID kind of question, but I think it's also a larger social justice, social issue kind of question, simply because this is an issue for those of us who have chronic illnesses, period, in terms of one of the things, and I I can get on my soapbox here, but Women tend to be dismissed in terms of their pain. That's something that's been documented. People of color tend to be dismissed in terms of illnesses, and that's also been documented. And so these get into larger issues in terms of the questions in terms of like, why and how do we get physicians to take real illnesses seriously when they truly are real illnesses? And this is something that I think is starting to come to a head with the long COVID movement and that many of these issues, and and I'm going to try to make this brief because it is such a large issue. So myelagic encephalitis, which is very similar to long COVID, has been around for decades, but very few people took it seriously because it only affected a small percentage of the population and largely women. And now that it's affecting a large percentage of people, there's the issue of If people had taken it seriously decades ago, we'd actually be moving toward a cure. But it was literally the lowest funded condition there was, most likely because it only affected women. And what they've seen in studies is that women predominant conditions are in general not taken as seriously. So I think while it's a simple question, it points to a much larger, much more systemic issue. Right. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. You're absolutely right. It's a social justice issue. And we have stumbled upon a condition that really can be improved through diet and exercise. Mm -hmm. And dietitians are really at the forefront of being able to provide this care. Your article, which I will provide a link to for our listeners, provides such good background information as well as steps we can take to feel better. But they are surprising tips. I mean, we don't typically embrace recommendations to increase sodium, which is what raises a lot of eyebrows. So let's talk about what is at the root causes of the symptoms before we launch into dietary approaches. Sure. So the root issue under 
the POTS recommendation is something called hypovolemia. So people with POTS in general have lower blood volume than people without. So most of the recommendations for people with POTS are around expanding blood volume. And that's why, as you alluded to, the recommendation for POTS are in some ways counterintuitive. So first I'll go for the, the forest approach. So the big picture approach there around increasing fluids, increasing salts, movement, and movement differs whether you have post-COVID POTS or quote-unquote pre-COVID POTS and things like compression garments, different cooling things, and elevating your bed and things like that. So getting into finer detail for fluids, it's two to three liters of fluid. And pretty much any kind of fluid counts except alcohol, but it can be pretty much anything that hydrates. It can be liquids. It can even be hydrating fruits or vegetables. It can be smoothies. It can pretty much be any kind of fluid. So your two liter to three liter recommendations, just so people can put this into perspective, mm -hmm. that's equal to between eight and 12 cups of liquid per day. That's a lot. Yes. And the other thing is I'm giving broad numbers. So I'm not differentiating between the pregnancy guidelines and the pediatric guidelines and the COVID guidelines. I'm going for middle of the road here. Right. Well, the other recommendation that raises eyebrows is the amount of salt. So the recommendation is 10 to 12 grams per day. Mm -hmm. We don't generally speak in terms of metric units. So mm -hmm. that equates to about two teaspoons per day of table salt. And yes. that's, also counterintuitive to what we've heard for years because the American Heart Association recommendations are like half a teaspoon. So we're making a big jump here. So first of all, the guidelines are in terms of salt versus sodium. And I want to point that out because especially in terms of dietitians, we talk in terms of sodium. And so these guidelines are in terms of salt. And so I want to point that out because sodium and salt are not the same. And that's something that Sometimes I say backwards as well, and it's really easy to, to mix those up and those aren't the same thing. So I, I want to point that out. So we're talking around 10 grams of salt. Usually I will start patients. Well, first of all, I'll ask the physician for a salt goal or a sodium goal. If I don't get one, I will start a patient at five grams of salt and gradually work our way up to 10 grams Sometimes we'll stop somewhere along the way if, let's say, seven grams is sufficient. But the whole idea is that like increasing fluids, increasing salt will increase blood volume, and that will often have therapeutic effects. I do think that we should just go back to clarify because it is so confusing every time someone gets a sodium or a salt recommendation. It's not easy to jump between those two. No, it isn't. You, you're talking 10 grams of salt, yes. which is the equivalent of two teaspoons of salt. And I like your recommendation where you can put two teaspoons of salt, say in a little cup, and you can mm -hmm. keep it on the kitchen table and then just use a little bit of that throughout your day until you've used it up. But then there's also the sodium recommendations. So I believe it's the American Heart Association 
that their recommendations are to limit salt to about half a teaspoon of added salt per day. And that's not easy. No. And so part of the issue and part of the problem and part of me wants to go back and do my PhD and try to figure this out. The guidelines for POTS were based on generally younger people with POTS, and they're only based on a study that was done for a week. There are no long-term trials on people with POTS. And now you have all these people who have post-COVID, who have organ damage, and we're having them follow these high-sodium guidelines. And part of the question is, is this still appropriate? Because and, and I'm saying this is a question because I don't have an answer to that question. Nobody has an answer to that question. And in terms of people with POTS in general, one of the long-term questions I have and many people with POTS have is, what is the impact of a high salt diet long-term on people's bones? As a nutrition professional, I've got questions. Right. Uh, so we have this guidance, which may be fine for you know, six months, a year, five years. But what happens when someone's following this guidance for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? I'm concerned about people with POTS and their bones long-term. I want to see long-term studies in terms of long-term health. And of course, COVID adds in a whole lot of extra wrinkles. Right, exactly. Okay, well, we're about halfway through. So let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. And today we're speaking with Cheryl Harris. She is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in public health nutrition from the University of California at Berkeley. And her specialty is gastrointestinal disorders, digestive disorders, and a specific condition called POTS postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which has increased since COVID. Okay. Since you mentioned your concern about salt intake on bones, that Mm -hmm. might not be clear to all of our listeners. Why should we be concerned about our bones? The main reason is that an increase in salt can cause leaching of calcium from bones. And so usually there are recommendations that lowering salt is protective of bone health. And here we are telling people with POTS to increase their sodium. And so that's telling people to do two things that are in conflict. And so my concern is in terms of the long-term bone health of people with POTS, which has never been researched. Mm. This is a great observation, Cheryl. Okay, the other recommendations, which are difficult, they certainly would be for me, is that caffeine makes symptoms worse. Do you know the mechanism of that? Well, there are a couple of things going on here. So many people with POTS tend to be dizzy, tend to be lightheaded, tend to have brain fog, tend to have sort of anxious, jittery kinds of symptoms. Not that they necessarily have more anxiety, but they may have more sort of jittery kinds of symptoms. Occasionally, caffeine will improve those symptoms, but more often, caffeine will exacerbate those symptoms. And more often, caffeine will make GI symptoms worse. So usually, and most of the recommendations recommend decreasing or eliminating caffeine. Well, I think it's important for people to know that just so if they're having an increase 
number of symptoms or a worsening of symptoms, they can connect those dots and Mm -hmm. say to themselves, wait, have I had too much caffeine today? Alcohol is something else. Alcohol is such a big part of our culture. So if somebody wants to go out and have dinner and have a glass of wine, or if they want to sit down and have pizza with a beer, that can cause a problem. How is alcohol related to this syndrome? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. So the general idea, going back to what we said about hypovolemia, that people with POTS tend to have a lower blood volume, alcohol tends to be dehydrating. When people are having alcohol, it tends to be a diuretic, you tend to lose fluid. And so because there's more frequent urination. And so that's part of the reason that there's the recommendations against alcohol. Okay. Now, you make good recommendations for eating small, frequent meals, mm-hmm. having fewer refined carbohydrates. That's always a good idea, no matter what our disease status. And you recommend that due to glycemic balance. Do people with POTS have problems with glycemic control or blood sugar control? I'm glad you mentioned. So one of the studies, and it came out just as this paper was in review, but it came out too late to include in this paper, showed that people with POTS are more sensitive to blood sugar fluctuations than people without POTS. And so there was an experiment where controls were given 75 grams of sugar and people with POTS were given 75 grams of sugar and the people with POTS had a greater response. There was basically a larger response for the people with POTS. And this is something that had been kind of known in the POTS community that there were just more, just, it was something that that had been known anecdotally for a very long time, but it was interesting to see it in a study Granted, it was only a study with, I think it was 14 patients and 13 controls. It would be great to see it in a larger study, but it's nice to see, you know, an initial study be done. Right. And you also mentioned that while celiac disease generally affects 1% of the population, research indicates a prevalence of 4% among people with POTS. So do you generally start out with a recommendation to reduce gluten? So that's another great question. So a lot of where this comes from is many people, as I alluded to before, many people with POTS do have digestive distress. The numbers are around 90%. So many people do consider or sometimes will put themselves on things like a low FODMAP diet. And FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. It's essentially a diet that reduces fermentable short chain carbohydrates or or sugars that may cause GI distress in some people. There was also a small study that didn't have a control group that showed that some people with POTS saw improvements in symptoms on a gluten-free diet. Again, only 20 people, so small study. I do want to see larger and more robust studies, but I was delighted to see a study on that. I want to see more research, but intrigued by that study. And because of your work with gluten-related disorders, is there anything that troubles you about consumers who try to follow gluten-restricted diets when they get into the marketplace? Is gluten hidden in a lot of foods? So this is a great question. So 
there absolutely are times where there's gluten in foods and people don't realize it. I mean, I work with clients with celiac disease on a regular basis. There are times where the FDA isn't doing a good enough job to enforce gluten labeling. I mean, that's a whole nother robust topic in and of itself. But the flip side is also something that concerns me. And what I mean by that is that eating disorders are really common among people with POTS. So while I'm concerned about labeling and all those sorts of things, I'm also concerned that clients put themselves on diets that are too restrictive. So I always try to find the best and most supportive way of eating for my clients and and find out what that's going to look like for each person. Right. Why do you think there's a higher prevalence of eating disorders? Do you think that it's based around people have fear about how eating something might affect them and so they start restricting excessively? You know, I'm thinking of an email that I got from someone who I haven't seen yet. And one of her comments was, I just don't know what's wrong. So I just keep restricting foods. Mm -hmm. And it kind of goes back to a part of the conversation earlier where often it takes people years to get a diagnosis. And when they don't know what's wrong, often it's, well, maybe it's this food, maybe it's that food, maybe it's this food. And because there isn't often, there isn't guidance there's often this free-floating suspicion, and it may end up pointing to a food, a lifestyle, pointing at different things which may not actually be the culprit. And I think that if people actually got the guidance they needed from doctors, from dietitians, from other healthcare professionals, the support also from therapists, and a proper diagnosis earlier, that perhaps that wouldn't be the case. But I don't really know for certain. It's such a difficult position in life to have a condition where you know something's wrong and you really don't know what's going on and how to make yourself feel better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of stress involved. And one of the things that most people do for reducing stress is to get some exercise. Mm -hmm. And that takes me to the exercise recommendations, because with this particular syndrome, there are certain exercises that can worsen the symptoms. So yes. what are the general exercise recommendations? And I'm glad you asked. And the first thing that I'm going to say is it's complicated. There are different recommendations for, I'm going to say, quote unquote, old school POTS, meaning POTS prior to COVID versus POTS from COVID versus people who have something called myelogic encephalitis. So there's things are going to depend based on the specifics of people's diagnosis. So I'm going to put that out there. Also, many people have something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a 30% of people who have POTS have a condition where there's a lot of dislocations where they may need to know work specifically with a physical therapist. So they're a lot of caveats where people may need a lot of specific support. All that being said, most of the time people with POTS are going to do best with what's known as recumbent exercise or exercises while they're in a laying down position. These are often things like swimming, rowing, a recumbent bike, sometimes Pilates. And that's because when you're in a lying down position, the blood in your body is more toward your head. Whereas when you're standing up, 
they're often, it's easier for blood not to be at your head. So when you're lying down, blood sort of is throughout your body and there isn't, the symptoms of POTS are usually much milder. And then as soon as someone with POTS stands, symptoms get worse. One of the recommendations you have in this journal article is to get a referral for physical therapy. And here again, we have a situation where insurance may or may not cover physical therapy, but it's often left to the patient to ask the physician for both referrals to physical therapy and to registered dietitians. Yes. So how familiar is the physical therapy occupation with POTS, do you think? And that's a really good question. And I recognize that my article is written from a position of privilege. And I I recognize that I'm saying, you know, go to ask for a physical therapist, ask for all these things. And you you want a physical therapist that's familiar with POTS. So that may be something where, you know, if you're a dietitian or a healthcare professional, look for someone who is familiar with POTS. And that may be something that you need to look around for. Dysautonomia International does have a list on their website in terms of healthcare professionals. If you're looking for someone who's familiar also with Ehlers-Danlos, because again, a third of people with POTS do have Ehlers-Danlos, the Ehlers-Danlos Society has a list of healthcare professionals who are familiar both usually with POTS and Ehlers-Danlos. And so many physical therapists aren't familiar. So it's going to be a mixed bag. And it's very easy for me to say, oh, get this, get that. It's a lot harder to do than it is for me to say. But it is also important to find someone who's knowledgeable. Well, I think that your journal article, more than being from a position of privilege, is from a position of insight and education and advocacy. And I think that it's very important for patients to enter a relationship with their medical providers, knowing a little bit about what might be going on and to know what to ask for. So that's just another reason why I really appreciate the work that you've done. Cheryl, we just have a couple of minutes left and I want to open the floor to you. Is there anything that you want to make sure our listeners know about POTS? So There are two things that I haven't said that I would love to mention. Um, One is, you know, when you're seeing someone and you think they might have POTS, asking the question, if symptoms improve when someone lies down, that's a good flag that it may be POTS versus a different kind of dysautonomia or dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, because that's one of the hallmarks of POTS. And then the other piece is just that given the numbers that POTS is two to three percent of the population, that, you know, if you're working with different kinds of patients that you are, especially digestive health patients, that you are absolutely seeing patients with POTS. I appreciate everyone who's taking the time to listen. Well, I will make sure that we have a link to this article 
as well as your website, because I think you've got some additional resources there where people can Mm -hmm. learn more. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so we've got to close. But I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Cheryl Harris. She's an award-winning registered dietitian. She holds a master's degree in public health nutrition from the University of California at Berkeley. And she has a specialty in POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, as well as digestive disorders. Thank you so much for being my guest, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me.